Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey guys, welcome to the show today. I'm excited to introduce you to my friend Gary Gray. Gary is an award-winning composer, producer, and engineer. He's produced multiple projects for 20th Century Fox, Disney, Hollywood Records, A&E, CBS, and many more. Gary's also a prodigy when it comes to drumming. One of his first gigs that he got was for Barry Gordy at Motown Records. Gary has been mentored by Phil Ramone, Quincy Jones, Jermaine Jackson, and Phil Collins. I mean, how cool is that? That is amazing. Gary is also the owner of the New Artist Model, which is a program that helps train home-based music producers to create the highest quality music for placements in TV and film projects. He is a music industry journalist and voting member of the Recording Academy, and he is a music supervisor working on multiple projects as we speak. I'm super excited for you to hear his story and to learn so much from Gary today. Be sure to grab your pen and pad and get ready to take lots of notes. All right, guys, I am talking with Gary Gray, who is in LA. How are you today, sir? Very good. Thank you. It is, it is so good to talk to you. And uh, I appreciate you coming on to my show and talking with me and sharing your expertise and all things music that you have done over your career. <laughs> I appreciate it. And um, I think it's a great thing that you've done with your your um, podcast and for the community of the indie musicians and pro musicians around the world. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that very much. I've had a good time with it. And I've had lots of amazing guests on that that do uh, the, the creative side as musicians and producers and artists and those types of things, songwriters, and then also on the business side. And so what I love about getting to talk with you is that you have you've kind of done all of it. Really, I mean, you've—I know you're a drummer, mm-hmm. and you're a producer, and you're a music supervisor, and you're a composer, and just kind of all different kinds of things that you've done. And you've got some courses and books out that you, and you're a journalist for, uh, you know, for TuneCore, and just really cool stuff that you get to do. So I, I'm excited to to talk with you and kind of get your take on all of these different things that we, you know, that we get to be a part of. And just so f- real quick for our, for the listeners to kind of know, you know, how we know each other. Um, this is our first time to actually get to physically talk to each other. We've talked a lot over email and over Facebook and those types of things. And you reached out to me and friend to me on Facebook. And, uh, you know, and I was so excited for that when I got to see, you know, who you are and what you do. And I think we were in a, uh, an online course together, kind of doing some TV sync film music type stuff. And I, I feel like that's how we initially got connected. Um, and then, 
you reached out to me. So anyway, and then as soon as you did, I was like, you know what? I've got to have this guy on this show. <laughs> there's just, there's a lot of information that I need to, to talk with you about. And so I, I'm excited. So anyway, let's just jump in. If you would just kind of give us a, a brief rundown of who you are, where you're from, how you grew up and what got you into music and has started you down on this path of music as a career. All right. So my name is Gary Gray, and I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, which is a great music town. And as I grew up there, I was exposed to a lot of cultures. So I played as a drummer. I was like a drum prodigy, a drummer prodigy growing up. Mm -hmm. And so I played in, you know, polka bands, uh, disco bands. I played in rock bands, heavy metal. I played in what we would call alt rock bands then, progressive rock bands. Uh, then I played in symphonies and Cleveland is huge on, uh, symphonic music. It's actually a a cultural center. It's a headquarters on planet earth, believe it or not, for symphonic music. You'd think Europe would be, and it is in some ways, but back in the sixties, George Zell, who was like the Michael Jackson of conductors came to Cleveland and following him were just all the heavyweights in the classical world. And then right up the, just a bit, you know, northwest of us was Detroit. So there was Motown there and we had a lot of the influences. And so as I grew up, I was playing in all these different kinds of bands on drums. And then I was playing in orchestras, percussion. And then I started my own band when I was young and it was called Liberty Boulevard. And that band was uh, comprised of like older people than me. I, I just being a prodigy, you know, I was being asked to play in some pretty uh, talented bands of people that were older than myself. So when I put my own band together, my whole circle were people that were very good on their instruments. And all of a sudden, the bass player who was from Cleveland invited the keyboard player, a friend of his who was from Detroit. And this guy would come down every weekend from Detroit. And here's an interesting little story, which was, the keyboard player's name was John, and he never said his last name. And I was like, <laughs> okay, John is our keyboard player. Okay. And I, f- I found out later that the reason he never told us his last name, I mean, you know, you have no idea their background, what, you know, what's up with that. So it turned out that John was a arranger for Motown, and he loved playing live music. So he would kind of slide out of Detroit every week, weekend, and come down and he loved this little band I put together called Liberty Boulevard in Cleveland. And we would just play uh, small restaurants and stuff like that, but really nice restaurants. And I was learning the business end of things then and learning how to do contracts with the, like the restaurant owners. And we, we, we did it. We had a pretty good stint there in Cleveland, but I was getting mentored by these uh, really heavyweight cats, you know, that were, were uh, teaching me a lot of things that you don't learn in a university or in a, you know, mentor setting, you learn on the job training as you're playing on stage and in rehearsals. And that was amazing. Cleveland being half black and half white. And, you know, I often found myself as the, like the only white kid in these like gospel settings. And that was one that just so close to my heart is this whole uh, genre of gospel choirs mixed with other genres and um, in fact, I just completed a big project. I'm in the middle of a, actually six projects for uh, the Disney Music Group and 20th Century Fox right now. And they happen to be in the 
kind of hybrid rock, EDM, symphonic, and gospel genres. Oh, wow. It's just a blast. So after Cleveland, um, or while I was uh, growing up there and playing drums, uh, the family bought a piano. And I started tinkering around on the piano and actually took a few lessons and just fell in love with songwriting and composing more informally at the beginning and then started learning more in school. And then I got a, a scholarship for music to Northwestern University in Chicago. And then from there, I went to two other colleges, to Baldwin Wallace College, which had the largest Bach manuscript library uh, originals in the world. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be in Berea, Ohio. You know, that's like right down the street from where I grew up. And so that was kind of cool. And then I went to Cleveland University. I went there because they had this jazz band. So I love jazz as well. And I traveled around the world. We even played like Rio de Janeiro and uh, with the Cleveland State Jazz Band. And then at that time in my life, so I was 21 then, I started to play uh, in big bands as a drummer. And those, so I was very, very, very lucky to play in some heavyweight live situations that were varied, like as varied as you could imagine. Uh, One band I played in, I mean, I know you're in Nashville. I played country in a touring band. uh, And we played up around uh, British Columbia, state of Washington. And so I had, I had a chance for, for myself. And you'll hear in this interview, probably a common thread, which is I call the human factor. I had a chance while growing up to watch audiences react, emotionally react to different music, different music genres, different songs, different beats, different combinations of playlists. I got to really observe people, humans react, Mm -hmm. and I got to play with people on stage. And I think it's a great, uh, you know, just... You know, at the end of these podcasts, usually ask for advice and I'm sure it'll happen and I'll give it. But even right here during the beginning of this podcast, I'll give the advice that anything you can do to enhance the human factor of your career and yourself uh, in dealing with other humans face to face live is a great thing. So I had a lot of that. So after that, I was definitely bit by the bug, like big time in music, and I moved to Hollywood. And I was married at that time. And um, my wife actually ended up singing background for Stevie Wonder. I got a mm-hmm. gig playing at Motown under Barry Gordy and Suzanne DePass playing drums. And that was just magical. There's no other word for that. And during the day, my day gig, when I first moved to uh, Hollywood, first three months, I was a printer. I liked printing. That was what I did when I was younger to kind of make money on the side as I built up my music career. And I worked in this print shop and across the street was Music Connection Magazine. So every day for a month, I went there to ask them if they had a job Mm. and they would kick me out of there saying, no, we don't have a job. And so finally the publisher came down to talk to me personally and said, look, please stop bothering our receptionist. Don't come back every day. You know, we'll, we'll print in our magazine when we have some jobs available. And I looked at him and I said, no, I appreciate it. I don't want to bother anybody. I just want to work for you. And if you give me a phone and a back office and don't even pay me, just pay me commission, give me 30 days and I'll help your magazine make money. 
And he goes, wow. hey, he goes, I like that. Come on back here. <laughs> so he gave me this old office in the back, a phone. And in three months, I was the head, I was the head of the advertising and promotion department at Music Connection Magazine. That's awesome. Yeah. And so I learned my, my business chops while learning the music chops. And that was very, very valuable. Let me ask you real quick. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you took some major initiative to, to go in and get that job and just be really persistent about doing that. And just to say, hey, I mean, I'll work for free or, you know, or just for commission to start out. And, but did you have experience doing whatever it is within that job that you were doing, or did you kind of learn it as you went working for them? I did have some experience. So okay. while I was in Cleveland um, playing in a big band during the day, I was selling advertising for a small, a very small magazine run by a, a gentleman there. And so, and then earlier than that in, in my life, when I was in high school, I worked for my girlfriend's father s- selling like a cookware and uh, okay, I got you. you know, stoneware and stuff like that. Right. And I wasn't great at it, but I had some experience. Yeah. You know. So what were you doing for Music Connection Magazine in that back office for that first month? I was uh, making cold calls to potential clients for advertising sales. So I was in okay. advertising sales. So those cold calls went out to bands, record labels, recording studios. I was in heaven. I was like, wow. I was just like, just moved to Hollywood. And now I'm getting connected to all these people. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Music Connection. I mean, that's the name of the man. Right. It was, it was yeah. awesome. Now, were you able to, I'm just curious, were you able to take the connections, quote unquote, <laughs> that you got in that job, reaching out for advertising purposes for for those labels and, and bands and different things like that, were you able to kind of keep those names and numbers in the back of your mind or kind of put away for future reference to ever reach out to them for other opportunities? Or did you even, were you even thinking that at the time? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it's an excellent question because we're talking here about something that I'm very, very keen on, like with my students and myself and my colleagues, and that's protocol. I was very aware of the fact that I could abuse this position, being a musician. Right. Like, you know, you could easily get into a conversation, let's say, while you're supposed to be selling advertising with a recording studio. Mm -hmm. By the way, how much is your cost? You know. Right. And I was keenly aware of that. Um the way I was brought up was in the Midwest, in, you know, in Ohio, your word was everything, you know, how hard you worked was more important than how you looked. And so it was at odds a little bit with some of the culture in California. And you'll find that many people in, not everybody's like that in California, but there are cultures, there is a word called culture and it means something and it was invented for a purpose. Like if you go to New York, there's a culture there. You go to Nashville, there's a right. culture there. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. it exists. It's something. It's real. And so on the West Coast, there's a culture that sometimes includes how you look, what you own, what you drive, this whole thing of status. And we didn't have that where I grew up. So I noticed that people from the Midwest who came out to California who were, you know, part of the Midwest culture for real, which is a work ethic culture you know, they tend to rise. So I was able to kind of quickly rise on the West Coast because I just, I maintained my Midwest work ethic culture. Mm-hmm. Part of it was what we're talking about, protocol. So here I am on a job that I could have taken advantage of like easily. And I was very aware of just separating 
what I was doing when I was working. And right. I would also, part of protocol is communication and coordination. So I went to my boss, the publisher, and, I, and he knew I was a musician. And I, I would tell him I would have conversations with him. It's not like I just went to him one time and coordinated. I would have regular conversations with him. And I would say things to him like, you know, I really got along with this uh, recording studio owner. And um, when I'm there, I'm just selling. He goes, I know. He, he called me a lifer. He goes, man, you're a lifer. You're doing great for us. And I said, I just want to let you know that I'm going to probably go there this weekend and record. He goes, no, that's cool. That's actually good because you can strengthen the relationship. He goes, I like how you separate it. So there's right. a, like a perfect example of uh, protocol yeah. and how it helped me, you know, in that regard. That's great. That's good information for people because the the assumption for a lot of people is is that oh I've got I've got this in here with this place and now I've got con- I can make these connections with this, all these other people and I'm going to use that to my advantage, you know, down the road and you know and there is the whole thing about building relationships with people and building trust and you know those doors can open up, but to do it in a way that is thoughtful and genuine and truthful and not, not taking advantage of a person or a situation just because you've been given an opportunity, you you know, you know what I'm saying? Yes. So that's, that's great. Protocol is a great term to use. I really, I like that term that, that you use that and to separate, you know, you got a job to do, and so we're going to focus on that and letting, and then letting your boss know, Hey, here's an opportunity that I might have. And he encourages you, you know? So that's great to hear that as well, that, you know, someone's encouraging you to take advantage of, of an opportunity when it's presented to you, you know, but doing it in the right time. Yes. Yeah. I think the reason he was encouraging me was that I would coordinate with him on a regular basis. Yeah, that's great. So you worked there for a while and continue. I, I interrupted you, but I wanted to talk about no, that. No, that's great. So, great so keep on yeah. going there. Sure. So as I was working there, um, at the same time, my wife at the time who's a singer, and we, we had this little duet called Rabbit's Feet. And it was just short-lived, but it was really cool. We played just a few gigs because right after that, what happened was – she, during one of our gigs, she was kind of discovered by somebody who worked over at Motown and they invited her to audition for this uh, production called Heat Wave, which was a kind of a street opera and it was going to be made into a movie, a Broadway show and a tour. And they put a lot of money and time into it. Some big celebrities were backing it from Motown. And so she got the lead female role in this thing. The role was called Bernadette, you know, the song Bernadette. And that was the character she played. And again, I was saying it was a street opera. So it was comprised of 13 of the top Motown hits. And they're putting this huge production together for it. Kind of like if you think of a modern day, um, in modern terms, it'd be like Hamilton, but of of Motown hits. Right. You know? And so she got that part and then she said, hey, my husband plays drums. And they said, well, we'll audition him. So they auditioned me and I uh, got the drummer part and did drumming and arranging for Motown under Barry Gordy and Suzanne DePass. Suzanne DePass was amazing. I learned a lot from her. She was like the most powerful woman, woman in the music industry back in the 80s. And after these rehearsals for Motown, which we did in this big church in Hollywood, by the way, they, couldn't, they didn't have a big enough space. So they found this huge church and we, we rehearsed in there. Um, she would ask me to go with this clique of people. I was like 
I don't know, I was like brand new there. I was from Ohio. I had no real status or anything. And so she would have celebrities coming and, and these this small clique that she hung out with. And for some reason, she would bring me to every one of these. We'd go to Yamashiro's. For those of you who have been to Hollywood or know Hollywood, Yamashiro's overlooks Hollywood. And it's this uh, Japanese restaurant that every piece of that restaurant was brought over on a boat from Japan, numbered, deconstructed, wow. numbered, and put back together in Hollywood. Wow. And so we would go there and I would, I learned a lot there just, just at these, these little get togethers after these rehearsals and watching her network and how she operated. I mean, she basically discovered uh, the Jacksons and Michael Jackson. And she mm -hmm. was the one that talked Barry Gordy into signing the Jacksons. So that just gives you, I mean, that's one of many things she's done in the industry. So that gives yeah. you an idea of her power and her influence in the industry. So can I ask you, what's a, what are a couple of things, if you can say, you know, a, cu a couple of things that you learned from her by watching her in the networking process? She really, really believed in people. And it resonated with me because while I am working with students, there's not one time in the last five years, because I've been mentoring, you know, for like 30 years. So in the last five years, I came to realize something, which I learned from her which is that a real action taken to show that you believe in someone, not just words, but kind of going above and beyond for a person, no matter their status or their background or how much they have done so far, you know, just showing another human being that you believe in them and care for them does more for that person and their career and their life than anything you could possibly teach them or give them or show them or it's that human factor. It's the, it's the thread of kind of everything I do and everything I'll say today. It's that one thread called the human factor. So that was number one that I learned from her. And I just saw, she did that to me and I saw her do it to other people around her. And the other thing was that she was a consummate professional in business and she wouldn't open her mouth unless she knew what she was talking about and had done research. Mm. And I've had a chance, and I'm sure it'll come up in this uh, podcast, I've had a chance to be mentored by, it's almost like I have to pinch myself when I list the people that I've been personally mentored or apprenticed by, and Suzanne passed to pass being one of them. So it was this thing of believing in people and really preparing yourself, researching, and knowing what you're going to talk about when you get into business. And then, and then just on top of that, so it's just the the subject of business, I would say, is the other thing I learned from her, like how she went about doing business, networking, preparing things, attention to detail, you know, knowing what she was talking about, and then how to manage and deal with people. So it's quite a package there. You can see yeah. why this person was like one of the top oh, goodness. executives yeah. in the industry. Yeah. So just for a moment, if taking that information, the things that you learned from her, what would be something that you would encourage the audience listening to? How, how would you suggest they apply that to their business and to their networking? Like, is there anything specific that you would say, okay, here's something that you could really benefit from when you're networking, or this is, this is a, you know, a red flag. Don't do this when you're networking with somebody, <laughs> you know? Okay. Yeah. Networking. Well, I have a motto, a personal motto, which is 
I'm either networking or not working. That's and, really good. Yeah. And I love it. I, I did borrow it from a neighbor in Cleveland. And so, uh, Willie, so here's a shout out to you, Willie. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, That's fantastic. Yeah. So I would say when you're networking, you know, I hear things like, you know, adding value to relationships, building strong relationships. And I hear things like, um, you know, when you're networking, you know, think about the other person and they all are correct. And, but for me, when I hear them and try to use them, they tend to be like trite little sayings mm -hmm. that don't quite go to the, the meat of the bone. You know, they, they are good, but here's how I approach things. I say, when you're out there networking and you meet someone, think about helping another human being and think about going above and beyond for another human being. And it's something that I kind of repeat to myself like a mantra almost, and I really try to help my students do. I apprentice them on this. I'll go on Skype with my students and I'll help network with them. They'll say, I got this meeting coming up. I said, when is it? It's on Thursday. It's around 4.30. And I look at my schedule. I said, you know what? I'm free then. If you want, I'll go on that uh, Skype meeting with you if you'd like to apprentice networking. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. I mean, sometimes it's not appropriate. They say, no, I have to do it myself. I'll right. say, okay, well, then let's practice. And I'll have them practice actual, their actual networking. But sometimes they say, no, that would be totally appropriate. That would be awesome uh, if you could come on that meeting with me. And then I'll just kind of work with them and with the other person and show them how to network. And so the way I network, as I said, is to help another human being. So I have a, an approach to it, a specific approach, which is, uh, and you know what I'll do? Uh, I think I'll do Marty right now is I'll, I'll kind of list for you a number of mentors that I've had because I've learned what I'm about to share from as a common denominator from almost every mentor I've, I've ever worked with. Sure. So, so what I'm about to show you on networking, I learned from uh, Quincy Jones, who okay. again, I have to pinch myself, who is yeah. actually, you know, a close friend now. Yeah. And, so that you just like we're at Christmas Eve over at his house or something, weren't you? Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, awesome. It's kind of a family tradition. That's uh, cool. My girlfriend, Chrissy, who's my studio manager and she herself is a studio drummer. Uh, we both go up every year now as a tradition on Christmas Eve to, to visit with, with Quincy and those two, Chrissy and Quincy get along like, like little kids. I mean, she has the same birthday. She's played the same first instrument trumpet. And then they've both, you know, had kind of uh, brushes with mortality. Mm. And so they share a very intense, uh, kind of background together. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So Quincy has become a real, um, inspiration for me. And he's, like I said, I mean, every time I say it, it's kind of like unreal, you know, he's become a friend and a mentor. And so then there was Phil Collins there. I mean, each of these has stories that are too long for oh. this podcast, but yeah, but man, that's so cool. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. Goodness. And then uh, Chick Corea. Chick Corea. Yeah. And he's won like 27 Grammys. He's a, you know, jazz pianist and he's considered like uh, just a well, he's a legend. I mean, can't say enough about Chick. I've learned a lot from him as well. And then there's been uh, Jermaine Jackson. I actually have been invited to the Jackson estate probably a dozen times, you know, through the 80s and 90s. And 
Uh, he became a mentor and friend for me. And then there's a number of others. So those had a common denominator, those mentors. And the common denominator there was like helping another human being and then really believing in them, you know, and Suzanne, of course, was in that list, and then going above and beyond for that person. So when I network, here's what I do. I meet someone and I find out what they need and want. And they'll start telling me all these musical things. Well, I need, like if it's a music supervisor, they'll say, well, I need music in the uh, country genre and the hip hop genre. And this is what I need. And this is what I need. And I said, oh, cool. That's awesome. I said, you know what? Let's put music on the side for a minute. And just mm -hmm. as a person, what do you need and want? Yeah. And sometimes it takes me like rewording that question five or six times and really repeating it until yeah. I get an answer where they go, wow, you know, nobody's ever asked me that before. Right. Yeah. Of and course. I'll get some very interesting answers. And I'll give you an example. I worked with a publisher. I worked with a publisher, uh, Heavy Hitters Music, one of the top publishing companies in LA. And one of my uh, partners and clients took me to meet her one day. And I asked her that question when we were just sitting in her office. I said, uh, what do you need and want? And she goes, again, she started answering, well, I need this kind of music, that kind of music, because that's what she hears every day. And I said, you know, let's not talk about music. What, what do you as a person just need and want? And she sat back and she goes, wow, nobody asked me that before. And it took her like 30 seconds to answer. And that's a long time, 30 seconds in the middle of a busy meeting, right? In a busy day. And so she said, you know what I need? I need someone to go help me with Ritmo. I said, what's Ritmo? She goes, that's R-Y-T-M-O. That's Reaching Youth Through Music Opportunities. She's a, you know, it's a, it's a nonprofit that helps young kids. Do you know that I tell everybody that comes in here to help me with that? And hardly anybody actually does. You know, they'll make a call or they'll go there once, but nobody really helps me with reaching you through music opportunities. And I said, well, could I get the name of who runs that? Like, and I got all the contact information and I didn't even during that meeting, I didn't say, Hey, I've got this kind of music. I've got that kind of music. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? I want to get my music licensed. I just got the information from her, from what she as a person needed and wanted. Yeah. So for a year, I went and volunteered at Ritmo, at Reaching Youth Through Music Opportunities. Never called her back. Never said, hey, I'm working for Ritmo. Remember how you told me to do that? I just kept helping them. I kept doing what she needed and wanted. I knew that her being the top publisher in LA had everybody coming at her constantly, 24-7, Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Do this for me. Do that for me. Here's my music. Here's my music. And I'm like, no, that's not really, I'm not helping her by doing that. I'm only helping myself. And if I choose the right people to help, and that's part of this, this whole formula, which is really key, is you're not going to go around helping everybody because then you'll just be out on the street and you won't be able to, you know, pay for your bills and help your family. You do have to make money and you do have to receive help, but you just have to really carefully choose who you're going to help choose people you know that are in a position to help you but do it for the purpose of helping another human being so i did that for a year and she contacted me and she called me one day and she goes it wasn't even an email she called me she goes gary and i said what she goes i've been meaning to call you for like six months i've been so busy listen thank you and i said oh you're welcome she goes you you've been you did what i asked you to do and i said yeah, I mean, I took it seriously when, when you answered my question. 
She goes, I can see that. She goes, listen, do you have any music? Send me some music. I'm going to help you get it licensed. That's great. So I sent her a track and within, I think, a few weeks, it was on The Young and the Restless on CBS, daytime television, and have had a number of placements since that time. So that story, I think, kind of encapsulates how I try to network and how I try to teach my students to network. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's great. And, you know, we talk about that a lot on the show is, you know, this whole business, 98% comes down to relationships and knowing people and relating to people and looking beyond what can you do for me? You know, how can you help me? You know, and you, that's exactly what you did. You know, you went and found a need beyond outside of music, kind of reaching around that bubble and working to help a person out just in life, you know, yeah. and they, they, when they see that, it's like, okay, there's a connection there that you're making because I can see that this person doesn't want something for me just so that they can get something back. You know, it's like, oh, you're investing in someone's life and you're, and you're building a friendship out of that, even though you didn't talk to her for maybe a year, you know, but it, that comes back around and that person can see this person is taking, you know, interest in, in me and what I, I need and what I'm wanting, you know, just in my life. And so that was able to come back. And not that that was your goal to even say, you know, well, maybe in a year, maybe she'll come help me out, but just to help her, but it worked out. It was, you know, it worked out that she was willing to do that. And, kind of help set you on a path. So that was, that was really cool of you to do that. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah. that is and, a great, that's great advice for people. Yeah. And I encourage anyone and everyone, cause I really believe in what I'm doing uh, with reaching youth through music opportunity to check out it's ritmo.org, R-Y-T-M-O.org. And okay. it's just, it helps uh, these at risk youth and kids that have not had a great life for one reason or another. And it uses music to heal and to help give them a career. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I mean, Ritmo had a Emmy nomination from the students, from the young kids. They, they're taught how to put together, you know, produce, like I also mentor there. And so I teach, you know, besides doing, I do their, their n- newsletter, their monthly newsletter. I do that, you know, just um, on my own time, volunteer. And then I help mentor, but we've had a, uh, Emmy nomination for daytime TV from a track that was put together by the students after, you know, we taught them how to produce for licensing. And mm-hmm. so it's a heavyweight, uh, organization. Awesome. Well, we'll put that in the show notes so that there's a link there. So people, people can go check that out. Now, is that a, is that a nationwide, uh, organization? Is that, are there those groups, are they kind of like spread out or is it focused in LA or how does that typically work? Focused in LA and spreading okay. as we speak. So I'm helping okay. set up uh, chapters in San Diego and in Glasgow, uh, Scotland right now. I have a student oh. there who's keenly interested in doing all kinds of work now with myself and the president of Ritmo um, on setting up a Glasgow, Scotland organization. And uh, as I said, in San Diego. And then there's this year we, we're looking to, by the end of the year, probably have four or five additional um, you know, headquarters around the world. Yeah, that's cool. Well, we'll, yeah, we'll definitely put a link in the show notes for that and people can go check that out. So hopefully cool. some people can get involved with that as well. So 
you've worked with, you know, having these guys be your mentors and kind of help you business wise. How did that, well, let me ask you this. Once you were able to uh, get music license on the Young and the Restless, that was actually my first placement, music placement too, was on the Young and the Restless. <laughs> that's <laughs> so cool. that's a cool, cool yeah. connection. Yeah. Um, but once you were able to do that, like how did that start to grow and how, who were you able to start reaching out to from that, from that point on in order to get more music licensed and start actually producing stuff for other people and things like that? Uh, interestingly enough, it opened up through some students who kind of, without them even knowing it, helped um, me. As I helped them, it actually helped me with more licensing placements. One asked me to help finish up, put polish on his uh, album that he had got signed with Megatrax for. So I helped him polish that album up. And then he put my name as a collaborator on there. And then they got to know me that way. And I got more action there. And then mm-hmm. Another um, student, uh, Liz Torelli, who's in, she's uh, originally from, she grew up in London, but her family's from Italy, so she goes back and forth. She was signed to an album with EMI Production Music, and then when she started learning from me, uh, as you know, me being her mentor, she started one-on-one mentoring lessons with me. She asked me if I could help her finish that album off with EMI Production Music London, and I said, yeah, sure. So I helped polish that one off for her and taught her while I was doing it. And she had been trying to get it approved for a year. We got it approved within a few weeks. And then she was so excited after that, that she sent them my showreel. And I got an email from EMI Production Music London saying, hey, if you want to submit any conceptual music production albums, you don't need to send us a demo. Uh, you're officially one of our composers, and as long as we have a need for that concept, we'll pay you up front, and you will, you're now part of the family. And I was like, where'd this come from? This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, right. And they, they told me, they said, uh, well, your student, Liz, was so excited about uh, your mentoring that she sent us your showreel. We were looking at your showreel, and it turns out that the Megatrax album that you did is distributed by us and we love that album. So Hmm. you're free to go. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. That's great. So uh, that's just a couple, you know, examples of how things started to kind of multiply. And one of the, one of the most exciting ones for me was getting a call from uh, the Disney music group in 2013 or end of 2012. So that's like, what, like eight years ago. And they said that they had found that I would be one person in the industry that might be able to help them solve a problem. And I was like, what problem is that? And long story short, they needed a certain quality of production done, like at a one-stop place. They were looking for certain uh, epic productions to be done, and they would have to go to several places to get them done and have to go through this whole workflow and assembly line. And they were trying to see if there was one person that could supply them with everything they needed for these big epic productions, these projects. And I said, yeah, I can do that because I've been, you know, like back when I was a kid, I started my first home studio, you know, when I was like uh, 11 years old and that's before people had home studios. And so I've been, that's what I've been doing. That's what I do. And so um, I got pretty good at productions from a home studio. And I, and I said, well, yeah, send me the specs. And they sent them to me. I said, yeah, I can do that. And they're like, you sure? You know, they were like, not even sure. And I said, yeah. So they gave me the first job. I finished it up for them. And they were like, man, you hit this out of the ballpark. This is awesome. 
And uh, we're like very impressed with the quality and how fast you got it. So we're going to give you more work. So I've had work from the Disney Music Group since 2012. And then they were networking because those, you know, even the big corporations are constantly networking, having, you know, lunches and hanging out, social things with the kids and blah, blah. And other parents work for other companies. So they contacted 20th Century Fox. And then two years ago, I got a call from 20th Century Fox. Can you come down to the lot here? And I'm like, sure. So I went down to the lot and they said, uh, we're going to have you do a bunch of projects for us. We just wanted to meet you. Like I thought it was an interview. And they <laughs> said, we're going to give you a bunch of these projects. We just wanted to meet you because that's how we do it here at 20th Century Fox. We like to you know, meet face to face before we set everybody up. And so now I'm an official vendor also for 20th Century Fox, which means I'm like on their roster of producers and arrangers and composers. And so now I've been doing epic productions for 20th Century Fox um, for two years now. And so that's, it's like, I, I, what I teach my students is this, is that if you follow the norm of the current culture in music production and licensing, you're going to keep pushing for quantity. And it's only a third of the formula and it's not going to help you or your career or the community or the industry in achieving the potential of our industry, of the person's career, or of their music. I said, that's one third of the formula is quantity. And so there are so many tutorials out there and mentors and people and publishers and libraries and agencies that push people for quantity. And two thirds of the formula is quality. And if you push for quality masterpiece recordings, and I've developed like some like revolutionary approaches to how to set up your workflow in your DAW, how to approach your life through life coaching, which is huge. So on the musical side of it, two thirds is quality. One third is quantity, which by the way, leads to much more quantity. And on the life aspect of it, two thirds of it is life coaching and the human factor. And one third is the music. And so through this particular formula, I've been able to create, um, like I'm a researcher from hell. Like at one point I did 5,800 hours of research on the differences and similarities between digital and analog recording, mixing, and mastering. So I don't ask anyone to agree with my research findings, but not everyone has the opportunity or the time to do that much research. And so when you hear me speak with confidence about what I teach and how I approach things, it's because I've actually rolled up my sleeves and sweat for, you know, a few thousand hours to come to my conclusions. But what I do is I encourage my students to become soldiers of research that on one hand and on the other hand, to balance their life. Like, you know, this whole subject of life coaching. If I don't use life coaching in my mentoring with my students, they never really achieve their potential. When I do use life coaching, along with teaching them music, they not only achieve their potential, but they go way above and beyond their potential. So it's just a, a, these, these kind of formulas I've come to, to find that are like universally workable for everyone that I've known as a colleague or as a student or as a client for myself and for everyone I teach. So... Now I know that you've got a lot of different companies that you own and, and things that you do. So uh, you've got a course called the Lucrative Home Studio. 
And obviously that's teaching people how to be able to produce and engineer and create music tracks from, you know, their home studios so that they can either put out albums or uh, do TV, film, licensing music, that, that kind of thing. So how did that come about? And how does that work? We'll put we'll put links to that so people can go check that out if they're interested in, in being a being a part of that course as well. Yeah, sure. So the lucrative home studio came about. I was approached from uh, by Dave Kusek, and Dave Kusek, he's the person who actually pioneered online schools for music, and he was working at that time at the Berkeley School of Music, and he went to the Berkeley uh, board and said, "Hey." we should go online. We should go on the internet with our, our school. And they're like, what's online mean? What's the internet? I mean, it was just, you know, being born at the time. This was in the nineties. So he put together a, a business plan, brought it to the board. They called him back for the next meeting after they saw his business plan. And they gave him $3 million to set up and establish the Berkeley online school of music. And he ran that thing for like six years. And it, it's still to today, it's like the, the biggest, uh, in terms of schools, the biggest online and most successful music school. So after that, he went and started something called newartistmodel.com. And there, it's not really like, he's not competing with Berkeley because it's more designed to help the indie musician who maybe can't afford to go to Berkeley and to help them so that they can further their careers. And so he came to me about a year and a half ago, two years ago now, and said, I want you to put together the masterclass for new artist model in terms of music production and for home studio owners. And I said, why do you, why are you coming to me? I mean, I'm kind of a guy behind the scenes. I said, you have access to, you know, anyone you want, anybody of these like big name producers and stuff. He goes, I've been following you. He goes, um, you know, I kind of been stalking you. He goes, I've been looking at your tutorials and your approach is kind of revolutionary and it's very different. And I like the way that you have dropped all your sponsors because you want to create uh, an environment where you can teach from the truth and you tell it like it is and where there's a myth. He goes, I love how you call, you know, certain aspects of the industry, you know, pushed by myth makers and brainwashers and you lay it out with a lot of research and then you actually come up with revolutionary techniques and approaches for how people can achieve like truly radio ready broadcast quality recordings from their home studios. He goes, I hear a lot of talk, but it looks like you got in there and dug around and did the proper preparation and research and you've got something revolutionary to, to present to the world indie music community. So I mm -hmm. want you to do this. And he kind of sold me. I was kind of nervous at the first. I was like, why is this guy who's like a legend in the online training world and created this empire online? You know, why is he coming to me? I don't have the name. And I have the products, but most of those products are kind of behind the scenes, like with the Disney Music Group and 20th Century Fox and stuff like that. So I did, I put together this, I worked for months putting together this 50 videos and it's, it has re revolutionary uh, music ear training production on it. Uh, it ha even has built in life coaching in a online tutorial and it really goes over the human factor in a huge way. And so the approach that I take for taking someone who wants to get 
music production and licensing done at home is a very intense approach. And it's, it's, I, I, I have such a passion for it. I mean, I, um, it's half my life. So half my life, my half my day is doing yeah. producing and engineering and arranging and composing, mixing, mastering. And then the other half of my day is teaching. So I teach that. And the biggest joy I get when I have a success in my career is sharing it with my students so that I can give them some credibility and I can, you know, they can see their teacher is practicing what he preaches and it makes them work harder in their studies with me. And, and that's something right. that's really important to me. Yeah. So I wonder, just out of curiosity, when, you know, I think there's a, there's the argument that some people throw out, you know, you can't get good quality recordings from a home studio or, you know, in your bedroom or whatever on a laptop and a computer and interface and, you know, in the box and makes that that's radio quality or, or broadcast quality. And, you know, because it's got to be in a, in a major studio and, you know, in LA or Nashville or wherever. And that's just not the case, but I think people have, sometimes people have a hard time believing that, you know, or, or telling themselves, you know, I, I can do this, or I'm not sure I can do this, you know, because, you know, these other people keep saying, no, you can't do it. So what would be just something, a nugget that you could share of, to let people know that, yeah, you can do this. It is possible. And what would a nugget of information be to help maybe get them down that path to, to actually make that happen? So the best nugget I can give you is to actually give you a nugget for real and then okay. explain to you more about it. So I'm going to send you a link, Marty, and you can post it on the podcast. And it's to one of the recent projects that I did for uh, Disney 20th Century Fox. And it was actually picked up and used in a commercial, which is actually airing right now. It's in major rotation on major networks around the U.S. And it's for a um, Agua Caliente Resorts. So when you listen to that recording, the entire soundtrack was recorded in my 12 by 12 bedroom home studio. Okay. So that, for anyone who's skeptical at all, uh, will... That usually makes, you know, it converts anyone who says, I'm not sure if you can do that. You can't do that. Sure. They listen to that recording and they're like, whoa, how do you do that? They want to know. Right. So to give you some theory behind that practical, um, one of the things that I've set up is a revolutionary way of A being, of using reference tracks. And there's a something called checkerboard A being. And the full term is mute automation checkerboard A being. It's a revolutionary approach to mixing and mastering that I've developed. And this was after, I think, about, about 2,000 hours of research and trying to nail down how could I personally, and then how could I personally teach, how could I personally produce something and then teach someone how to produce something so that every time they were in the studio, in their home studio, they could end up with a radio ready broadcast quality recording so some people like will do that once in a while they'll create an incredible mix but they won't be able to do it consistently every time they're in the studio i'm under such crunches on deadlines that i have to in order to keep my business going and keep my reputation you know intact i have to create you know a-list quality broadcast quality, radio ready, competitive 
mixes and masters every single time I'm in the studio because I've built my career up to the point where I have some heavy heavyweight clients and I can't afford to have one track where they go, ah, you know, can you fix this up? Can you fix that up? Like I can't even afford that. So I'm, I'm super stoked at showing people through like the lucrative home studio, the exact way of a being, but I'll say this much. I get this argument, you know, from some people, they're like, I don't need to a B. I don't need a reference track because I've done this for so long. I have a good enough ear that I know what a good mix sounds like, and I don't have to compare it. Plus, I don't want to compare it to another track because I don't want my track to sound like another track. I want to be artistic. I want to be unique. There's all these arguments. And what I tell them is this, is I say, you know, there's a status driven reason behind a lot of things we do in this industry. Um, and what I mean by that is sometimes I'll watch a tutorial or listen to a podcast or I'll watch an interview and there's a producer who's like a well-known producer or just putting out good products and they will talk about how they produce, how they work in the studio. And then now having done this for several years, like I'll have lunch with those people, some of these A-list quality, you know, producers, engineers in town and they'll tell me something totally different during that lunch that they said on their tutorials or during their interviews. And I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you said you don't uh, AB. You don't use reference tracks on your tutorials. I know. I, I just don't, I don't want to come across like I, like I need a, a crutch or like I'm a, you know, riding a tricycle with training wheels or something. I, I, I just don't want to have that kind of image. And so what I find is this, is that everything that I teach is being done by A-list producers and engineers in some way, shape, or form. I've just been able to take it and put it together and package it up and teach it in a workflow that anyone can immediately do. So, I mean, here's just the nugget I would give is that if you're not using reference tracks, just pull reference tracks into your DAW. I mean, I have 23 different ways of using that reference track in your DAW to quickly create a radio broadcast quality recording. And, you know, those are in the, my courses and stuff. Like I, I hold nothing back. I give all my secrets and then some. And, but we're using reference tracks to compare, just compare as you're mixing from the beginning of your project, from the beginning. That's a key. That's a secret right there. And there's a way to do that. And I'll tell you how to do that right now is to get apples and apples. Because if you pull in a mastered track that's a commercially successful recording into your DAW, well, you're mixing while you're comparing it to a mastered track. And so some people will say, yeah, you can't do that. And I say, well, yes, you can. What you do is you shave a little bit off the low and the high end and you pull the volume of that reference track down to the volume of your mix. And now you've reverse engineered that master recording pretty close to what the mix sounded like before it was mastered. Because mastering will increase the lows and the highs mostly and the volume. So just shave a little bit off the high end, the low end, pull the volume down of that reference track in your DAW and now compare it. And by ear, because I have this saying, you know, use your ear, not your gear as a priority when mixing. So by ear, match the volume level of that reference track, which has been shaved on the high and the low end, to your mix. Pull it down till it's exactly the same 
volume, not by meter, by your ear. And then you can compare. Now you can go in and start mixing and compare how you're doing. And it's just like curbs on the road. It keeps your track competitive. You don't have to follow everything that's going on in the reference track. You're comparing. You're not necessarily matching. People think A-being is matching something. You're just right. comparing and you're using it as a guideline. And that one thing, like if I were to die tomorrow and I had to leave a legacy, it's this whole series of ear training exercises that I've developed and how to A-B. So that's really um, the nugget that I would share with anyone that wants to do music production in their home studio. Man, that's fantastic. That's really, really, really smart. Um, I'm going to take that and I'm going to use that myself because <laughs> I haven't, <laughs> I've never thought about doing that, you know, just shaving off the lows and highs and pulling it down. And that's great, man. No wonder why you've got, no wonder why you're so successful at what, you, at what you're doing, just because you're, you're thinking outside the box and you found ways to do, to, you know, to, to do stuff from home that people don't think that can be done necessarily. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. And, and I love sharing that information, you know, cause it was so successful for me. Right. Uh, okay. Real quick. I just want to, I mean, we could talk probably for hours and I know you've, you got other things to do, so I don't want to keep you. Um, now I know that you do also your journalist now for TuneCore. So I'm curious how you got in with them and had been able to start writing for, for that company. Yeah, that was a uh, big thanks goes out to uh, Dave Kusek and Chelsea Ira, who works with Dave. And she's helped put together like the actual administration of the courses and she helps on webinars and stuff like that. Well, Chelsea took um, one of the lessons that I teach, the tutorials that I teach in the Lucrative Home Studio. And she asked me, she said, can I put together like a little uh, little article and send them over to TuneCore, like just and summarize I'll send it to you before I send it over there. And I said, yeah. So this was a couple, maybe a year and a half ago. I said, yeah, that'd be cool. So we summarized this one lesson from the Lucrative Home Studio and sent it over to TuneCore. And then they loved it and they printed it. And then they contacted me, um, you know, coordinating with Chelsea. They contacted me to say, hey, we'd love to have you write a whole series of stuff. This is like revolutionary and I was like, sure. And I was surprised, Marty. I was actually surprised because some of the stuff that I go over in these these um, articles that I've written now, I have a whole series of articles. That, they're all two-part because I it's hard for me to <laughs> – you can tell, you know, I, I'm excited about what I'm, I'm doing and I've done a lot of research. So when I answer a question or I write an article, there's a lot of information in how I arrived – at the findings I arrived at, which is, that's what helps people. They're like, oh, I see why I'm doing it this way. So I can't just give little like bullet points, you know, and that's not my approach. I'm not, I'm working on a nine hour video right now for my next course, which shows everything that I've done from starting the recording, you know, without blank, like blank, writing it, arranging it, editing it, mixing it, mastering it. And I found that that's what students want. I, I, I have 12 students that every week I do a two-hour like a testing sessions with to find out what people actually want. And they don't want these little, you know, I'm told always people are in a hurry. They just want these little tidbits, get down to it, show them exactly, you know, the results of what they need to do. And that's not what they want. 
They want to create quality recordings. They want to have integrity and they want to see exactly how I do it every step of the way, every second, what I'm thinking. And so that's what I'm creating. So TuneCore really responded to these things that I was presenting. And I would call out, you know, not by name, but I would call out the subject matter of what I call, you know, myths and brainwashing in music production. Because there are a lot of illusions that occur when people are mixing and mastering in a home studio or any studio. There are like, there's something you could look it up online called the McGurk effect. You look up the McGurk effect and you watch uh, one video. It's called, look up BBC McGurk effect. You look that up online and watch this illusion that happens when people are mixing. And I've located now uh, 27 illusions because I've done a lot of research in psychoacoustic that occur when people are mixing. And I show you how to mix where those illusions are not a detriment or a challenge or a barrier. So you can objectively hear your mix for real. And that's the biggest problem with people in home studios or any studio is that they literally cannot objectively hear their own mix. They're hearing other things. And so it's no wonder they're not getting radio ready mixes. And I show them how to understand what these illusions are, how to identify them and how to overcome them and work in a way that those illusions are not affecting their mind and their ears. Right. Yeah. Man, that's great. Um, this is fantastic stuff. Uh, man, I wish we could just sit and talk for three or four hours. <laughs> it's still good. Uh, I, I do want to go back for a second, though, because uh, I'm curious. When you're writing for Disney, well, really quick, how did Disney find you? Because you said they approached you. So what was it that they saw or how did they find out about you and why did they approach you to begin with? Do you know? Yeah. So I was doing a project where I was producing a U2 tribute act. I had a bunch of different clients and one of them was someone who was doing a U2 tribute act. And so they asked me to do like backing tracks for them so they could go on stage and do their U2, you know, tribute concerts, but with added backing tracks. I said, yeah, I'll do that. And so then they said, hey, could we try to actually record a U2 like, you know, song and make it sound like YouTube? I said, yeah, like YouTube. And I said, yeah, we can do that. So I did the, the hit one, you know, the song one by YouTube. Um, I recorded, uh, it's called a re-record in the industry where I, I created a recording that sounds exactly like the original, not a cover. It sounds exactly like the original. And so that's something I'm able to do. And I teach my students how to do that. And there's a purpose for knowing how to do that. Because once you can record a re-record, even eight measures, you know, or 20 seconds of any recording, I can show you how to make an exact duplicate of any recording in any genre. And so, so I did it. I said, yeah, let's do that. I'll do that for one. So I got the singer to come into my studio and, you know, the drummer and all that stuff. And so I recorded and the week before I finished that recording, I met, which was kind of interesting. I met, um, Steve Lillywhite, you know, the legendary, producer for you too. And we got along really good. I met him and he was speaking at this thing in Hollywood and he asked me actually to come with him for uh, a coffee afterwards. And so I said, yeah. So we started talking and he actually gave me his email address and phone number and said, yeah, let's hook up. You got some interesting stuff going on. I said, cool. So I finished that YouTube re-record of one 
And I said, hey, I got Steve Lillywhite's uh, email. Uh, he'll probably never answer me, but I'll send it to him. So I sent him that recording. I emailed it to him. And then like 15 minutes later, I got a response. He goes, Gary, that sounds just like the original, like two exclamation marks. And so I was like, wow, that's a legendary YouTube producer telling me that this YouTube re-record I did sounds just like the original. That's quite a, an acknowledgement. And so I showed it to the guys and they were like stoked. They were like, wow. And so one of the people that was helping with this whole tribute uh, kind of project that I was doing, he had another tribute band and the guitar player in his tribute band was the head of administration of licensing for the Disney Music Group. And so that guitar player was telling um, my contact, he was saying, hey, we have a problem over at Disney. We're trying to find somebody that can just all by themselves do specific recordings. And some of the recordings we need from them are going to be re-records. And my, my friend said to him, oh, I got the guy for you. He goes, you do? Because we have nobody that can do this. We can't find anybody. And if we could, it would solve a huge problem for our licensing department. So the person from Disney contacted me and they gave me a shot. My first project was to do a re-record for them because they needed stem files because some recordings that are done for movies are done in one room with the, you know, everything's done in one room and they don't really have stem files of these right. tracks. Right. And they need them for licensing. So I did the um, first project for them and they said like, man, you hit this out of the park and they just kept giving me work after that. And that's how I got the, the Disney. So it was just, just by quality. See, it's by the quality of your work. I, you know, I, I know the importance of social media. I know the importance of getting likes and fans and all that. And I know how to do it and I can teach it. But personally, myself, for my career, my publicist, you could say, my marketing agent, you could say, my distribution, and my advertising is the quality of my work. And that's what I push for my students. And it's, it's kind of lacking in the, in the licensing world. Now, no, there's amazing quality that's going out, okay? There's amazing quality that people are producing. But when I hear from a fellow music supervisor, one of the top in the industry, and she tells me, I asked her a question. I was on a panel for the Music and Film and TV Summit in September, and there was a heavyweight music supervisor that came there. And I was like, wow, I was just felt honored to be there. And I said to her, what percentage of tracks that you get are usable and workable for licensing for like decent, you know, lucrative spots? And she goes, well, you got to understand something, Gary. I take solicited material. That means she takes no non-solicited material, which means she, you can't just send music to her. You have to actually send it to a, an attorney or somebody that she knows, and then they send it to her. So this would be like, you know, people that have gone through the trouble of having someone represent them in some way, shape, or form and sending that music to them. So she answered my question. She said, what percentage do I get of music, of all the music that I get that I could actually use? She said, 2%. Wow. I said, what? I said, 20? Did You said 20, right? Which is, to me, that's still even kind of low. You know, she goes, no, no. I said, T-W-O. 2%. I said, what does that mean? That's, wow. I said, you're getting solicited tracks. She goes, yeah, let me be real with you. She's very down to earth, right person. She said, let me be real with you. 
98% of the stuff I have for one reason or another, it's not good enough. I said, well, you know, production, the writing? She goes, yeah, the production, the writing. It's just not good enough. It's not good enough. It's there. This industry right now is becoming glutted with people who are being pushed for quantity. Get quantity tracks out there. You'll learn as you go. Like here's one, one thing that's just a myth to me in brainwashing. Okay, you're getting into licensing right now? Mm-hmm. You want to use learn music production? Okay, here's a few tips. Uh, one, two, three. Okay, now create some tracks and just get them out there. Shop them and you'll get better as you go. And some of those will actually get licensed. Well, you can say that's true. Some of those will get licensed. But look at the problem that's being created. You're glutting the industry and people's time with having to go through inferior amateur tracks to find tracks that are good enough. So I show my students how to create masterpiece quality recordings quickly, but and also how not to glut the industry. My personal purpose is to create a renaissance in the music industry, which will then create a renaissance in the world culture. And, you know, Lord knows, man, we, we need a renaissance in the world culture. So, and I think it's going to come about by integrity, by quality, by balancing your life. You know, that's why I just use the term life coaching for no better term than to say, let's balance our lives. Let's make sure that we're dealing well with our families and our businesses and the groups we belong to and doing some volunteering and charity work. And let's become better people. And when you become better people, because I'm always striving to become a better person, when you become a better person, you create better music. And, you know, this is just a, it's such a passion for me. And I'm sorry for blabbing, but I can just go on no, and on. No, you're not at all. Is, you know, <laughs> no, you're not blabbing. I appreciate this, this so fantastic. much, Marty, you know, that you've given me this platform to share this stuff. No, this is great, man. I mean, this is what people need to hear. You know, the, my audience, this is what they're looking for because a lot of them are trying to get into producing and composing for TV and film projects. And a lot of them are just trying to be artists and songwriters and, you know, and you've, or musicians professionally and get to do this for a living. And, you know, this is what you're doing, you know, and you're doing yeah. it exceptionally well and able to teach other people. So anytime that I can have someone come in that is teaching other people, you know, and has a deep well of knowledge that they can share with others, you know, and that can help promote you and what you're doing, then that's, that's what I'm here for. That's what I want to do. Oh, I appreciate it. And you know, one of the reasons that I'm still here doing it is because when I hooked up with um, Aaron Davison, who has become a partner of mine now with howtolicenseyourmusic.com and howtolicenseyourmusicpremium.com, Aaron just was constantly in different ways. You know, when I first uh, found out about his website, because I wanted to learn how to license my music, he in very many angles, from very many angles, would basically just uh, inspire me and just say, just don't give up. This is like a marathon race. Licensing is a marathon race. Just don't give up. Keep going. Keep going. And so mm -hmm. then as I kept going, I appreciated what he had done so much. So I offered to help him. And I ended up now, uh, I think it's now four courses that I've done for howtolicenseyourmusic.com. You know, one is um, how to produce music that will get licensed and make you money. Another one is music production fundamentals. And then there's how to get a killer vocal sound and the mysteries of mastering solved. I teach my students how to master their own music for licensing. And that's a fascinating study in itself. So I just wanted to really give a big shout out and a thank you to Aaron Davison. 
uh, from howtolicenseyourmusic.com. And we've been partners now since 2012. So that's eight years. And um, we're going strong. So that's a uh, something that I think people can also check out. Sure. We'll make sure to put all that stuff in the show notes for people to to go check out all those all the the sites and the or the courses and books and everything that you're a part of and do all that stuff. I know, I know, I know that I'm forgetting, I'm blanking and forgetting things that I know I want to ask you. Um, <laughs> and but I know that we, I need to let you go here in a minute. So, just to kind of wrap up, is there? Um, and you knew this was coming from the beginning, <laughs> but <laughs> is there any any particular piece of advice? I mean, you've been giving tons, but. Um, just kind of wrapping it up, any advice or step, you know, a step-by-step practical something, you know, to tell somebody, okay, if you're going to do this, you know, what's something that you maybe haven't shared yet, or maybe something that you would tell people, you know, avoid doing this, you know, do this instead or something along that line. Yes. Use your ear, not your gear as a priority when you mix and master. So there's a whole kind of a subject of addiction to plugins. And I have some students that, you know, I asked them, can you add up the number of plugins you have and how much you spent on those? And I had one guy that said, well, uh, I have 274 plugins. And I said, how much did you spend on those? And he said, I can't tell you. And I said, why? And he said, I got halfway through adding it up and I almost threw up. And he said, I can't believe where all this money has gone. And how many of those plugins do you use? And he said, 20. And so by the time he was done studying with me, you know, a year and a half later, he was using about 12. And he was extremely successful, still is, in licensing and in, in the production world. And he has learned how to develop his ear. So that's one piece of advice I'll give you is that there's so much, and you know, I, you know, I teach this stuff and I sometimes see these, you know, these sales on certain plugins and I do, there are certain plugins that I call power tool plugins that I tell my students and those that I work with that, you know, it's a good idea if they have them and, um, you know, that you can find out about those, you know, on the lucrative home studio and on different, you know, you can just go online and kind of, uh, Google me and you can find out about those. But there are certain power tool plugins, I call them, that really help you get quality and quantity. But even with those, if you're not using your ear and you're not developing your ear, and you know, I, I have specific music production ear training exercises. They're revolutionary. So that's one thing. And the other thing, advice is this, is that all of this whole look at the music and your music career and licensing and your goals and your dreams, they can all be achieved. You can absolutely do it. You can absolutely do it from your home studio. You can create as good or better quality than what you hear on the radio. And one of the key components of getting that done is to balance your life, as I said earlier. And that's my other strong advice is to take a look at, like what I see is that I see people not achieving their dreams because There's either a lack of discipline or they have some kind of vice going on or vices, you know, whether it be drinking or drugs or porn or whatever it is. It's like there's something in their life that they have a blind spot on. You know, it's like it's easy for other people to point out, but it's hard for us 
individually ourselves to see our weaknesses. Often it's a blind spot. And so I encourage people to just take a look, you know, not because I want to make them feel bad. It's because I want to make them feel good. I want them to succeed. You know, take a look at your own life and see if there's any vices you have. Because if you do have any, and I considered personally, this is my opinion, you know, not everybody agrees with me, I know. But, you know, like I, I'll drink maybe once every, I don't know, two years. That's just because I, I just enjoy life. I don't need a drink. That's just how it is for me. You know, and when I get stressed, the way that I handle stress instead of going to a drink or a vice is I go in the studio and I produce something I'm proud of. And that gives me the morale that I need rather than getting it from something destructive. Um, drugs, you know, some people think it's okay to do drugs and I think it's not. You know, that's my personal thing and it's been, and I've had students who before and after were doing drugs, even just, you know, uh, recreationally. And then I gotten a heart to heart talk with them. We said, Hey, let's try six months without see if there's any difference. Huge difference, huge difference, you know? And so I stand up and I'll say it and I'm not asking anybody to agree with me. I'm just sharing with you real life facts. And that is if you address yourself from the position of self-improvement and life coaching, fixing anything that's a little broken or that's a weakness, that is going to do more for your music career right there. It'll shatter what I see as a glass ceiling that occurs when people are doing things destructive to themselves or others. And so it just needs to be said. I, I found this out just by experience, by teaching people for 30 years. Whenever I talked about stuff like this, their careers took off. If I didn't talk about stuff like that, they just didn't quite achieve their potential. So that's the, those are the two biggest pieces of advice I could give. That's fantastic. I appreciate you sharing that and being just honest and, and real about what, what people deal with and, and explaining and letting people know that you know, one for one, you don't need those things in your life and that they are destructive. And if you can get, if you can get rid of those things, then your life opens up to so many more possibilities and so much, you know, make it just so much better. So just, I appreciate you sharing that and uh, thank you for doing that. Um, okay. Last Last thing, because I know that you're now doing music supervision as well as composing and teaching courses and <laughs> the plethora of other things that, that you're a part of. Um, what are you seeing as a one, as a music supervisor and two, as a composer that's you're writing for like with Disney and, and uh, Fox and these different companies? Is there anything specific that you're looking for musically from from artists that when you're needing music or what is it that you're hearing from either maybe disney or fox like that they're looking for that you that you're having to get for them yeah there's um there are specific um common denominators in licensing today and it changes from time to time uh, but there are also some common denominators that kind of flow through time I call them kind of timeless, needed, and wanteds for the licensing world. And they would be things like, I'll give you, I'll, I'm actually going to read from you a list. I had somebody do some help. They helped me do some administration on research I was doing. And pretty much the question you just asked. So here, here are some general themes that are constantly in demand. Okay. So it'd be like brand new, turning point, moving, feeling good, female empowerment, friends, fun, happiness, hero, home, hope, inspiration, swagger, 
togetherness without being cheesy or unite unity, winning success, going for it. I'm a fighter. Can't break me. Let's do this. Let's go. Don't stop. Next big thing. Revolutionary determination, road, travel, path, journey, sadness, regret, grief, not for most commercials, but that's good for TV or film. Right. And then songs with space or sparse lyrics and or with words like, you know, just sounds like haze, ahs, ohs, oohs, as part of the fundamental structure of the song. And so now also the, these are some of the styles and the sound alikes that are often used as references. Uh, they'll have like high energy rock, indie rock, alt rock, you know, like Coldplay, Arctic Monkey, Arcade Fire, One Republic, Nine Inch Nails, Imagine Dragons, mostly with lyrics, but sometimes minimal lyrics, as I said, like O's and O's in the background and melodic acoustic driven piano or guitar. So that's, uh, that's actually pretty timely that you asked me that because I just finished that research and those are things that are being that are common denominators of what are being asked for for licensing where you could actually make a living you know make some money right so is there is there any particular project that you're getting to work on right now as a music supervisor uh, as a music supervisor I'm, I'm kind of a baby because I just started and so I'm uh right now working with a film production company in Hollywood and they're having me do, which is awesome because it's something I've never done and I'm learning from it. They're having me uh, do clearances for hit songs. So in other words, they're trying to get some actually hit songs in their movie. Like um, one of them is the magic bus by the who. So one of the things I'm working on right now are getting, finding out how much it's going to cost to use this hit song in, in their movie. And it's like, it's turning out to be something like, uh, the initial fee is like $74,000. That's just like this upfront fee to kind of start, start the negotiation and get things rolling. And then there's going to be fees on top of that. So in the coming months, I'm going to actually have briefs. I actually act, you know what, wait, let's see if I have it here. I do have a, a specific thing that I'm looking for. And I just remember that. And so that's something that's uh, has a deadline for the end of this month. But by the time this thing airs, I'm going to have other briefs and I'll need music for people. So they should just, what they should do is they should uh, watch like one good um, website, which I just put together as a music supervisor is called above and beyond music.net. And I'll have some briefings there for film, for music that's needed for film above and beyond music.net. They can okay. check that out and they can contact me via that website. That's actually a good way to contact me. Perfect. Well, thank you for sharing that. So yeah, man, Gary, I, I'm so grateful for, for you and your time coming on here and talking and man, I, I just wish we had three or four extra hours and you know, probably, <laughs> so do I, 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 probably, I love, I love sharing this stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, you know what? I will probably have you on again. Um, in a few months just to follow up and, and maybe continue the conversation and talk about some other things that we haven't even gotten into yet. Cause I just know there's so much more to talk about. Um, but man, I appreciate you and thank you for sharing all of this information. And, you know, we'll put, like I said, we'll put the links for everything in the show notes where people can go check out your books and your courses and, um, 
your articles and different things that you've been a part of and uh, just wish you the, you know, the best of everything that you're getting to be a part of and continue, continued success and, and licensing and composing and getting to teach people. And man, I'm just it's so good. So good. So thank you for your time. And, uh, and I appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. No, you're, you're welcome, Marty. And thank you. I mean, when you asked me to be a part of this, you know, I jumped on it because I think what you're doing is amazing for the industry. To me, you're a very important person in the industry because as I told you, my personal purpose is to create a renaissance in the music industry that will then create a renaissance in the world culture. And I think you're doing both. So I just mm, really appreciate you. the opportunity to allow me to share my experience and, and any wisdom I've picked up from my mentors through your platform. So I just wanted to say a big thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's very encouraging. So, all right, man, well, you have a good rest of the day and we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. You too. Thank you guys so much for joining us again. What an amazing episode. There was so much amazing information in this episode that Gary had to share with us. And I really hope that you take all of this and put it into practice, into your life and into your career, and that it will help you to rise up and to accomplish all of your goals and all of your dreams in the music industry. Remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. If you need consulting services via phone call, Skype, or FaceTime, be sure to let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.